we will wait a little bit, guys, because there are some others that are coming apparently. So, but I, I'm happy to uh, actually just spend a bit of time talking with you first. Uh, those that arrived late, I suppose, miss out, but that's the way it goes. They can maybe see a recording of it later. Everyone can hear, okay? Good day. Feels really good being having both hands free. I'll bring out the Italian in me. No disrespect to Italians, but <laughs> um, I was thinking today what we might do is uh, many of you have not had the opportunity to ask questions, and many of you have seen DVDs or seen many DVDs and listened to many of the recordings down downloaded from the internet and you haven't had the opportunity to ask questions. So what I'd like to do today, perhaps, and what we usually do this the first time we go to every lo any location, is we give people the opportunity to ask, uh, to ask questions. And bear in mind that your uh, questions and the answers are being recorded. And so if you have an issue with privacy, um, you might want to deal with that emotion before you ask the question. Um, because sometimes uh, we find the questions get asked and then somebody comes up after and says, oh, but I don't know if I want the world to know that particular thing about me. Um, the reason why we do this, though, is because most people have very, very similar questions to what you have. And, uh, and for that reason, when you ask a question, a lot of times you're not just asking the question for yourself, but actually there's spirits around you who also probably want to know the answer to that question. And on top of that, anybody who listens to the recordings and the DVDs often benefits from the questions you ask. So, so feel free to ask anything. And you can be as obnoxious as you like um, as well, if that's what you wish. I don't know how long you will remain in the audience if you like that, though. We'll see how long um, you remain doing that. But the key is just to be as open and frank as you possibly can with what's going on inside of yourself, but also... Uh, with the questions that you ask. The more open and honest we can be with the questions we ask, um, the more we allow ourselves to connect with our own emotions. And that's, the, that's a pretty powerful thing for all of us to do. So basically it's up to you guys. What, what would you like to know the answers to? And I'll give you as many answers as I can. Fire away. What was your name again? It was... Uh, Alan. Aaron, that's right. Fire away, Aaron. What would probably be the strongest emotion? Well, it's very different for different people because a lot of times we have a whole different set of emotions within us and, uh, and some of those emotions are very different to, to feel. But generally, for men, the hardest emotions to feel and the most overwhelming emotions to feel for men are grief. And for women, the most difficult emotions generally to feel are terror-based emotions. So fear and terror-based emotions. But that's a very much a generalisation because not everyone's the same and not everyone's had the same experience. So it just depends on what your life's been like as to what the most difficult emotion is to feel. Yeah. Anyone else would like to ask a question? I'll have a little chat. Yeah? Um, well, I've been listening to DVDs and iPod and all that kind of stuff for yeah. months and... I have real trouble getting past the anger that I have and underneath that is my, is, I know I've got a lot of sadness under there, yep. but yep. to try to get under it, I'm finding it so hard because 
you know, I was listening to another DVD who was saying the guy bashed stuff outside, you know, so I go hit a tree for a few hours or something, but it doesn't get to anywhere. Yeah. And I just, I don't know, is there any, I'm not really sure where to go with it, like or how to take it further. All right, it's a good question. Um, a lot of people have trouble with their anger, so if we recognise that under, underneath anger is usually fear, not grief. So, um, and then underneath the fear is generally grief. So, for many of us, the reason why we're in anger is because we're actually quite afraid about something and we're not acknowledging the fears that we actually have in the moment and we want to feel powerful instead. So we go into this angry place rather than staying in the place where we allow ourselves to feel our terror and fear. So... What, what I do personally is when I'm in anger, firstly I notice that I have this anger, whatever the anger is about. Um, a lot of times it's about like somebody not loving me or caring about me in a certain situation. So what I do then is I go, all right, so I'm angry about that. What am I afraid of here? And usually what I do is pray a lot about what am I afraid of, just wanting to discover what I'm afraid of. The problem for most of us is that we try to skip over our fear and get to the grief like that. And the way you are built is that it's, it, you can do that. And people do that quite regularly where they skip over their fear and go into grief. But the fear is, is that this fear-based emotions are what I would call a heap of blocks to actually feeling your emotions in a very natural way. So, so if you try to skip over your fear to get to your grief, you find every time some issue comes up, you'll be trying to skip over fear with every issue. It's far better to actually go through the fear itself and experience the fear itself. And when you experience the fear, there'll be usually tears associated with fear, but also your body will shake. You'll feel quite sick a lot of times inside, particularly around the diaphragm mid midsection of your body. And if you allow yourself to feel that fear inside of you and just experience it, what happens is after a while you release most of the fear that you have. And so what happens then when a trigger comes along, instead of your fear being triggered, I want to avoid the fear so I'm straight into anger, what happens is the, the, the trigger comes along and the fear isn't automatically felt because there's no, not much fear left. And as a result you can get to the deeper grief quite rapidly without automatically reverting to anger. The second thing is that because we have this fear, um, and we're not allowing ourselves perhaps at the moment to see the fear itself, what we finish up doing is we finishing, finish up sort of living in the fear to a degree and that attracts a whole group of spirits around us who are also in fear of, of usually the same thing we're in fear about. And because of... now, So not only now have I got my own blocking resistance to feeling my grief, but now I've got a heap of mates hanging on my shoulders, if you like, all also in the state where they are trying to block the grief as well with inside of themselves and therefore they want to help you get out of yours. And so what happens is the fear itself has now attracted a whole group of other people in fear and now my penchant for going into anger is going to be much greater again. So if, if we can allow ourselves to see that fear is something that does need to be processed, it's not something you can skip over on the divine love path, um, on the natural love path, what we finish up doing generally with fear is we start rephrasing things into different, 
so, so we say, oh, this happened to me, but it's all good, isn't it? You know, and those kind of statements we make. And it, we reframe the fear. What we want to do instead with the fear is actually to f allow ourselves to feel it bodily. So if you find yourself getting into anger a lot, the key is to pray a lot about fear. Uh, that will help you a lot to, to, to not get into the rage itself. When you're prepared to feel fear, that's when you actually finish up not getting into anger anywhere near as much. It's our, it's our um, desire to get away from our fear that, that causes us to act in an angry manner or to connect mostly with anger. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, most of us have large fears. As men, we have a tendency to not uh, recognise our fears, usually more than women, um, because fear and being masculine are like two, for many people, it's like two opposite things, you know. As a man, we're taught to never show our fear, really, to never be afraid. Now, a woman is generally allowed to be afraid, so, so she's allowed to have her fear generally, but for many women, they don't allow themselves to experience their fear deeply, and so for many women, there's also the tendency to get into anger as a result of avoiding their fear too. Generally, we're pretty much all made up a very similar way, and that is that when we avoid our fear, anger usually is the only result. There are other suppressing emotions above anger though. So, so above anger, we often, uh, and this happens for many women in particular, men generally are allowed to express anger. That's sort of viewed as a masculine emotion, although it's not anything to do with masculinity. It's viewed as a masculine emotion. So many men are allowed to feel their anger, but many women are not allowed to even feel their anger. And so that's the time when we go into complete... Um, suppression of our emotions which is depression and that's why um, there is a much higher likelihood if we're a female to have depression than there is if we're male to have depression because depression is the actual suppression of anger which is the suppression used to suppress our fear so every one of these steps is lo like in our own feelings is like a more powerful place but in from God's perspective it's actually making us weaker and less connected with ourselves. And it's all, in the end, just done to avoid the grief. So you're correct in saying there's grief there within you you can feel, but allow yourself to look at the fear, what the fear is that's, that's over the top of that grief. It's, it's, yeah, it is quite hard to get to the fear. You're dead right, it is quite difficult. And um, it requires a lot of honesty with yourself to actually look at your fears. Because um, a lot of the times we, we feel, we can admit, oh, well, I'm sad about this particular event on our childhood, I'm sad about that particular event. But it's very, very hard to admit to our, even to ourselves some of our fears because some of our fears are actually so childlike that we don't, as adults, even want to admit that we have them. Uh, to give you an example, most of your emotions are locked up at the age or frozen in time at the age they were created. So let's say at three years of age, you had, say, your mother yelling at you. So she, she's obviously, you know, she's this much taller than you at three years of age. She's over, over the top of you like this. So you're, if you imagine you're down here looking up at this angry person who's just like red, red, often in the process spirit influenced, and as a child we can often see that occurring as well. And we're just sitting there trembling because mum's yelling at me. We don't even hear what mum's yelling at me about. 
most of the time we're just in this terrible interaction with her where we're just feeling all this barrage of anger and rage coming from her and we're this little child who does not know what's going to happen next. We, we, we might be, get violently punished and for many of us we have had that happen as a part of this rage and so we're there as a little child feeling that emotion. Now that emotion, if I'm not allowed to experience that fear completely, will get locked up inside of me at that age. So I will be, it'll be a three-year-old's feeling of fear. So now imagine I'm growing up as an adult male, I'm maybe six foot tall or whatever, most of the women around me are shorter than me, and, uh, and I've got much more physical power than most of the women, and yet whenever a woman goes into rage, I go into terror. And all I'm actually doing is acting out the little three-year-old locked-up emotion. And so for many of us, we don't want to admit to ourselves that we're like a little three-year-old in that particular situation. And particularly with my mum, who might be still alive. So whenever my mum gets angry, I go into this little three-year-old state. I've got to do whatever I can to please mum. I've got to do whatever I can to get out of this situation. And so I do. That's what I attempt to do. And in the process of doing that, I finish up acting like a three-year-old and I go away feeling all ashamed of myself and everything for being such a childlike person with my mum, feeling really upset and judgmental about it, not understanding that actually it is the three-year-old's terror that I need to release. And when I release that, I will feel like I'm an adult now in my interactions with women in the example that I've given. So a lot of times our fear we don't want to acknowledge because it feels quite like we're often quite little when it was created and so we feel quite little when we actually start to experience it. And even just the process of acknowledging it requires a lot of courage and a humility that actually, no, I feel like a three-year-old child in this situation. I don't feel like an adult 47-year-old male. I feel like a three-year-old child. And, and it's quite hard sometimes to admit to ourselves even that we have that kind of fear inside of us. And so what we have a tendency to do is try to make out that it's not there and try to ignore that it's there. But in the process of ignoring it there, it's the, it's the emotions we ignore that finish up creating most of our life. So that's the thing we need to bear in mind. If, if we ignore the fear, then the fear will come to dominate our life. And that's the issue that we face. So if you can start to allow the fears to be present, which requires courage, and that's why prayer is such an important part of that. So, you know, long to God to let you examine and open up to all of your fears and also understand that, that God can help you through every single fear you have, every single one of them. And once you have that kind of reliance on God, you'll find you'll deal with fear after fear and eventually you'll get to the point where you've hardly got any fear left inside of you and any emotion that comes up just comes up naturally inside of you after that without reverting into anger or depression. Yeah. Yep. Does that help? Yeah. Yep. So focus on the fears. Just pray about those. Erin? What should you do if someone you love is suppressing their emotions and not embracing them? If someone you love is doing that? Yeah. Well... There's some issues of love yourself that we need to face. If someone I love isn't embracing their emotions, then I know they're not loving themselves. That's right, isn't it? I know they don't care about themselves. But, but what can I do that's loving that would actually help them to care about themselves? Well, the first thing is that I need to care about them. 
So when I care about them, I'm starting to teach them to care about themselves. But when I say I care about them, I don't care so much about the things that they do that are fake, but I'm caring about the real them, which is the person who has the real emotions inside of them. So, so the loving thing to do for me would be, if I have an interaction with them at any time, is to be very, very truthful about what emotions I'm feeling from them. Now, sometimes people don't want to hear about that and they get all that upset and angry with you about that. And so what you do there is you say, all right, they don't want to know what they're feeling, but also I don't have to put up with anger, so then I might need to withdraw a little until they um, work their way through why they want to project those things at me. But we still love them and care for them and we want them to obviously connect with themselves emotionally. And as children, um, you're often more connected with, your, with emotions and also the emotions of people around you than the grown-ups are, right? So, so often as children, you can say, oh, this is what's going on for you or this is what's going on for you, I can feel this in you. And they're all going around you, no, I don't feel that, no, I don't feel that. No. And in reality, they are feeling a lot of those things that you're feeling from them. But the key when you love them is you won't yell and scream at them about it. Like, so you don't, you don't say, you sit down and feel your emotions or else I'm going to... You know, you don't get really upset and angry with them. But it's, and instead you give them the opportunity to feel. But not everyone wants to take the opportunity to feel. So when you feel that from them, the key is to acknowledge their free will and say, well, you're allowed to not feel too if that's what you want to do. And... and, and but you don't, you personally, if you acknowledge another person's free will in that way, don't have to interact with a person who's always detuning from their emotion and letting you have it as a result. Does that make sense? Is there any particular situation there on that you were thinking of? No? Just in general. No worries. Yep. Joy? Um, you mentioned depression. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you get from depression to anger? Uh, depression, to get to dep- from depression to anger is that you need to pray about a willingness to actually feel your anger. So for most people who are depressed, there is a deep unwillingness to feel how much rage they actually do have inside of themselves and how much demand and control comes out of them onto other people. And as a result of that, they're unwilling to actually experience, to be honest about the fact that they're really quite angry. And the reason why that is the case is there is a lot of judgment about anger in the world and particularly towards women about anger and, and from women towards women about anger as well. And, and as a result of that, anger is something that is looked down upon. Both in all, in, If you look at all spiritual communities, pretty much every one of them say you shouldn't be angry. Right? And the problem with that is if I have anger inside of myself and I'm getting told from everyone around me that I'm not allowed to express this anger, then, then, I, then I'm going to try to suppress it myself. Now, there are right and what we could call right and wrong ways or loving and unloving ways to deal with our anger. A loving way is to get out a boxing bag like the one behind or whatever and a baseball bat and really just get into tuning in with the rage that's within and connecting with that and allowing myself to experience that. Now, if I'm depressed, and I'll give you an example. I've known some people who are in deep depression a lot of their life, and it took them four weeks of punching a a boxing bag for four hours a day to actually finish up connecting with their rage. That's how much resistance they had. 
to even connecting with it. So they'd go there and bang it and go, oh yeah, no worries, you know, that would be the first day. Yeah, yeah, AJ says this is going to connect me, but uh, it doesn't feel like that, you know. Like, and then the next day they do the same, bang, 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 you know, oh yeah, this is a good workout, right. <laughs> and, and sometimes a week later they say, oh yeah, you know, it's a good workout. But the key with all emotions is to look at our suppression of the emotion that we know is within that we're trying to deny ourselves. So if we're in depression, we know that anger is underneath it. So, so first thing to do is to trust that anger is underneath it and I don't want to feel the anger. So let's look at the reasons why I don't want to feel the anger. Look at my belief systems inside of myself as to why I can't express anger. Now for the majority of us, it's very much related to some core childhood emotions. Every time as a child you expressed anger, you probably got belted for it. So you learnt that if you are angry, you will get violent punishment as a result. So there's this relationship between additional personal pain and the expression of anger. If you're a parent and helping a child to express anger, it's fantastic if you can help the child to connect to their anger in a positive way, not pushing it out onto everyone else, but learning how to really connect with it. We have some friends who live in Tasmania who they bought a, a bat and a bag but a bat for each of the children, right? And what the children do is they get really angry. They're in an interaction with their siblings and they get really angry and they stand up and they stomp out to the, <laughs> out to the backs and bag and off they go, you know, and experience anger. And five minutes later, they're having a cry about what it's about interact. Then they come in inside and sit down and start playing the game again, right? And it's a far more uh, loving way for a person to connect to their anger. But usually for us as children, we have not been allowed to do that and we've been punished uh, in so many different ways to avoid our anger. So as a result, we have these deep beliefs that anger is something we should completely avoid. And on, on the path towards God, the issue is to not avoid any emotion, but just to understand that every, and also to understand that every emotion I attempt to avoid will have in a, in, as a result a further deeper emotion that is created that I need to get out of. So if I avoid my fear, I'm going to have anger and fear. If I avoid my anger, I'm going to have fear, anger and depression to deal with. Does that make sense? And if I avoid my grief, I'm going to have fear, anger, depression to, to, do, to, to do all that. Usually, usually it's layered. So if I'm avoiding my grief, then usually I'll be in fear. But if I'm avoiding my grief and my fear, then I'll also I'll be in anger a lot of the time. If I'm avoiding my anger, grief and fear, then I'll be often in suppressed mode, depression. And the key is to pray about the next layer down each time. It's the layer down that you need to get to, to get through, to get to what's underneath. So the key is to not try to get to grief when you're actually in a lot of rage. And when you're in a lot of rage, the key is to get to your fear, not so much to your grief because the grief will come up naturally you look at a child if the child is totally fearless with regard to it's not afraid of its environment at all in order to feel its emotions then it gets to its grief very rapidly you know, take a lolly away and bang it's crying <laughs> you know what I mean instant instant response pretty much to to grief but if you instill the child with fear now see whether it cries very rapidly you take, a you take the lolly away and a child will go into total shutdown almost, not crying because it knows that if it cries it's going to get a belting as well. So, so it's terrified at that point and so it doesn't allow its grief. 
And so every layer is just something that hasn't been allowed in our childhood. The key is to not judge it because every one of us have had a different emotional experience. And because of that, every one of us have had a different experience with how much of each emotion is inside of us. And so rather than judging, oh, that person's got a lot of anger and that person's got a lot of fear and that person's got a lot of this and that, or shame and other emotions that I haven't mentioned here, rather than judging it, what we need to do is support each other in the process of dealing with the emotion, but making sure it's the actual emotion we're dealing with, not some self-deception that we're dealing with. So you can stay, if you're depressed, you can, you can connect to your anger, but then you could project it out to the world. That's not owning it. All that's doing is living in the rage, and you're not going to get very far towards God doing that. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Michael? Hey, Jay. Oh, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Um, just noticing as you spoke, you were saying on the path to God and your finger went up, mm -hmm. as though it's up there somewhere. I'm just interested to know the God that you've mentioned a few times, and I have no fixed viewpoint on this myself, yep. but I'm just interested to know from your perspective where your God is, what does he look like, what is this path, and is, where do you see him, her, up there, down there, or in here? Um, very good question, Mike. Um, firstly, um, my God and your God are the same gods. Um, when, but we often come at God from very different angles. And as you know from your own past, you've seen very, very much, very different religious experiences in terms of people's viewpoint of God. Um, if, we, if we talk about God for a moment in terms of God's attributes and characteristics, um, firstly, God I view as an entity. So let's just draw God as a, an entity that exists just like you are an entity that exists. Secondly, God has masculine and feminine characteristics and qualities. So, so it, I am just as correct calling God my father as I am calling God my mother um, for, the, for the reason that God has masculine qualities and God has feminine qualities. And there are times in my own life where I'll connect with the feminine part of God, if you like, and there are other times when I'll connect with the masculine part of God. So even masculinity and femininity are what I would call God's, part of God's attributes. Right? And all of you have attributes in a very similar way. There are parts of you that you have, like your personality. And God has personality too. So God, being an entity, has personality. And God existed before I was created. That being the case... God and myself are two separate entities. And God, in fact, created... So if we look at God, the souls that God created, of which you and I are, are one, um, you are actually a half, and I am a half of, of soul. Um, these, this entity, which is our soul, of which I am a half, and Mary is my other half, um, this entity also is created with attributes and characteristics that are very unique. And, uh, and those attributes and characteristics are unique per soul. So each soul is very, very different from any other soul. Now, because we are separate entities, one thing that God gave us was this gift of free will. In other words, I can act upon my own will totally independent to God. That being the case, I can actually do things that God would never conceive of doing. 
Uh, well, let's just, we'll leave that one on your abeyance just for a little bit first. I just want to illustrate the fact that we are actually separate entities to God rather than actually uh, being God ourselves. So a common New Age belief is that I am God, right? whereas uh, my feelings are I am God's son. I am God's daughter if I, I was a woman. So, and God gave us this gift of free will to demonstrate to us that actually we have a life totally independent of God if that's what we want to do. In other words, we can choose to live a life of what I would call self-reliance. Right? And the truth is that the majority of people on the planet live in that place of complete self-reliance, very little reliance on God. Even those that are living in religions, as you know, often are in complete self-reliance. You know, they're not trusting God at all in their, in their life day to day. They might go along Sunday and do a few praises to God, uh, which they may or may not connect to emotionally at the time. But the rest of their life, they've spent very much doing their own thing, not really thinking about God much at all and all of those kind of things. Many people are in that state. So the truth is that we are a separate entity to God. So one part of your question was, is God within us? Well, God herself or God himself is not within us. We are a completely separate entity to God. However, parts of God can enter us. And in particular, God gave us the ability to receive her love. So let's say so there is a specific process by which God gave us that ability. But we can actually receive God's love, which is love that belongs to her inside of herself that we can open up to emotionally and actually have pour into us. And the, the majority of you here have had that experience at some point where you've actually completely opened up to God. Now, oftentimes it's been when you're in the most darkest of situations in your life and you completely open up to God and something changes inside of you because you're so open. This, this divine love actually flows into your soul. And we'll talk more about that in a minute perhaps. So a part of God can enter me, but that still doesn't make me God. It makes me more closer to God. And in fact, I use the term in the first century and now that we can actually become at one with God in this love. In other words, so much of God's love can enter my soul that I now do everything the way God would have done it if God was actually on earth. Does that make sense? It still doesn't make me God. It still makes me God's son. But now I am at one with my creator, at one with my parent, at one with my mother or my father, you could say. And that at one with God allows me now to live my life completely in harmony with all of God's laws and God's love. That's, we have the capacity, every single individual has the capacity to enter that state. But that still doesn't make me God. It's still, I am still God's son. And in fact, I will for the rest of my existence, be God's son. Um, and there's no way... It's a bit like your daughter, for the rest of her existence, will always be your daughter. It, it can't change. Now, she will grow. She will change. She will have all sorts of different experiences. She'll meet, maybe, and marry, and who knows what else will happen in her life. She'll have children of her own, of which will be her children. But, but at the end of the day, she's always going to be your daughter, in the sense that you got together and your seed created her, right? And we could argue that God created her, and we'll talk about that as well. But, but um, if you look at the analogy, you can see that actually 
she, she's never going to become your father and she's also never going to become you. You will always be two separate individuals in the same way that you are a separate individual from God. Now God existed before all of the things that I've ever seen and I've seen 22 dimensional existences. All of those things that I've seen, I have yet to see God in terms of um, in them. I've seen God's attributes in them. So in other words, I see God's love in them, I see God's wisdom in them, I see God's power in them. I see all of these attributes or qualities of God in all of God's creation. Right? But the qualities don't make uh, are more than the sum of its parts, if you like. So you, I could say you are a heap of atoms, but you are more than just a heap of atoms, aren't you? You are a heap of atoms with free will and a knowledge of your own self. That's pretty amazing for a start. But you also have an arm that can lift something. But you are not your arm. Your arm is an attribute or a, or, or a connection to you. It, is, it operates upon your will. But you are not your arm. Your arm is, 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 is a part of you. It's, it's, a, it's a subset of you. And it's the same with God's attributes and qualities. I can pick one of God's attributes and qualities, like God's love, and I can say that God is love, but love is not God. Do you understand the difference? I'm saying God has the quality of love, but love isn't the only thing God is. Like God is much larger than love itself because God has other attributes other than love, many of which I yet am to discover and most of us are yet to discover. But God has all of these attributes and qualities which make up this being that I can become at one with but never become. So I can never become God, but I can certainly become at one with God in the way that I love initially. And who knows in other ways, there might be other ways in which I become at one with God too. But if we can understand it as us being separate entities, it's very powerful. Because then what you start realising is that you can have a longing to open your heart to this entity called God, rather than thinking of God as an energy system. It's very hard to love an energy system. Um, Maybe if I can put it into this kind of uh, analogy. Um, how many of you love the electricity plant down the road? Now, that's a provider of energy to you, isn't it? Like, in the morning, you probably get up and you probably, you know, click the toaster on and chuck your two pieces of bread in there or whatever. You might put on the coffee urn or something like that and all this energy is coming into your home. But uh, you might love your toaster... Like, but very few of us say to ourselves, oh, isn't it such a beautiful thing, this energy system that's over there producing all this power for me? And the reason why is because energy itself is very impersonal, isn't it? We can have uh, energetic relationships with all sorts of things, but it can be very unemotional, every one of those energetic uh, relationships. The truth is with God, if we start seeing God as a personal, as a personal being that we can connect to, you'll start connecting with God on this different level, like a parent. But not the kind of parent we're all used to having, because most of us have grown up with parents who at times have shut us down and at times have opened up, but very, very different for each person. But rather this loving parent who loves us at all times. And once we start seeing God like that, we can start connecting to God in a completely different way. And we can start having a personal relationship with God. 
it's very difficult to have a personal relationship with an electricity plant aside from just putting on the power in the morning and turning it off at night. With God, you can have this constant personal relationship as a father to a son or as a father or a mother to a son or a father to a daughter or a mother to a daughter or a mother to a son. And you can have that personal relationship with God that can remain and grow the rest of your life. But if you don't see God as an entity and you see God just as energy, it's going to be very, very difficult to have that personal relationship with God. And my personal experience has been, over quite a long period of time, has been that actually God is an entity. And the more I think of God as an entity and less as an energy, the closer I get to God. And that in itself is proof that God is an entity. It's interesting when you speak with spirits, um, many of them have the viewpoint that God is an energy. And as a result of that, they have a very disconnected connection with God, many of the spirits who have passed. But as soon as you start speaking to them about God being an entity, and all they have to say is, if you are an entity and you have love to give me, then I would like to receive some of this love. And then they can actually feel love enter them. And then you ask them, and there's an experiment that I've done quite frequently with many spirits, then you say, well, now, now rub that out, stop feeling that longing that you have for God as an entity. Now let's say, if you're an energy God, can you please give me your love? And ask the spirits what they actually receive then. And I've asked many, many spirits uh, these questions. And on the second case, whenever they've thought of God as an energy, they've never received any love. But as soon as they think of God as an, as an entity, they now receive love which is in itself proof that God is an entity. Because love can only flow where truth is present. So, so, the beauty, so the way I see God is God is an entity. God is bigger than all of her creation, just like you are bigger than all of your creation. So everything you have ever created, if you look at you know, the, hand, you know, the boat, the car, the caravan, anything that a man can put together, we... One person is greater than the sum total of all those things. And God is very much like that. In fact, we can learn so much about God just by looking at what God's teaching us through creation. And if we look at creation, we can make many assumptions about God that we can then test quite frequently and, and, and without very much error. And as a result, come to some very, very firm viewpoints about what God must be like. And then as we receive divine love from God those viewpoints will either be confirmed or they'll be discarded because any viewpoint that is in harmony with God's truth will be confirmed and any viewpoint that's in disharmony with God's truth will be, will be denied by God through the absence of love flowing. So that's how God can actually tell you the truth. So the beauty is you can connect to this individual who God is uh, who has masculine and feminine characteristics but also has billions of other attributes and qualities of which I can learn about and I can connect through this connection of love that she is offering me and I can feel and long for that love and as I do and as I open myself up to feeling that love I can receive more of that love and as I receive more of that love the truth becomes well known to me. So instead of me being uncertain as to what God's nature is I become more and more and more certain as to God's nature. So one thing that I feel quite now is that God is certainly never um, angry. And I know that for certain. Now, years ago, I believed God was an angry God. So 
So years ago I felt that you know, God would punish the wicked and you know, the whole Bible thing of he'd reward the righteous and punish the wicked. Now I can feel, because of this deeper connection with God, I can feel that no, no, that's not the case at all. In the first century I grew up with this, with this, uh, in this environment where everybody viewed God as a punishing God. They all had to appease God all the time. They all had to make God feel happier. <laughs> and, I realized, and I realized after a short period of time, after feeling this connection with God, that actually nobody has to make God happier because God's already happy. Right? And, uh, and if God wasn't happy, like you imagine if God wasn't happy, like you're talking about the creator of the universe being unhappy. You know what you're like when you're unhappy. You imagine what God would be like if she was unhappy. Like when you're like, you know, there's tears flowing down your face. You can't, if you really connect with your unhappiness, you can't do much at all. You can't maintain anything around the home very well. You know, you get like, there's a lot of things. You imagine God in that place, like being unhappy like that. It'd be, you know, the whole universe would go to pot within, you know, a few instants. And because the, the universe is very dependent on all of God's happiness. And so, so we start seeing God as having these attributes and qualities that I can connect to. And the closer I get to God, the closer I become to reflecting those qualities and attributes in my own life. And so when I become at one with God, other people think that I'm God, but I'm still not God, I'm God's son. I'm still in this place where I'm allowing all of God's emotions and all of my own emotions, of course. And, and I'm in this really connected place, but I'm able to reflect divine love in all of my dealings with everyone around me. And that's what it's like to receive divine love. So does that answer a lot of the questions about who God is, who we are, and, and those kind of things? Now, I know you've been on a search for many, many years right, about God and, and you have this deep longing in your heart to connect uh, deeper to God, which you can feel quite frequently. And I know much of your history has been about feeling that longing and feeling, yeah, well, you can feel it. I know you can feel it, and I'm just describing your emotions. Um, so, so the key, the key now is just perhaps to experiment with a bit more truth, and just see how that affects this relationship that you've already got established with God, and see whether it grows or not. And um, the key for all spiritual growth is experimentation, really, in the end. Um, a lot of times we're so afraid to experiment because of our backgrounds or whatever. I know I was very afraid to experiment because I was always afraid that God would maybe punish me if I experimented in the wrong direction. And the truth is that if you experiment in the wrong direction, you will feel the pain of that at some point. But if you experiment in the right directions, you'll also feel the pleasure of that. And, uh, and the beauty of constantly experimenting is you get closer to God very rapidly if you allow yourself to see yourself in a feedback system constantly. So God is always telling us, this is the beauty of our Creator, is she is always telling us through lots of different means whether we're on the wrong track or we're on the right track. And pain actually in our soul is a great indicator that we're on the wrong track and pleasure that's long-term and deeply felt is an indicator that we're on the right track. So... And it's a beautiful feedback system that we have. Now, I'm not talking about short-term pleasure with long-term pain behind it. I'm talking about the deep, peaceful happiness that comes from, from things. That kind of pleasure tells you you're on the positive direction. And that kind of pain, where you feel the pain of relationships, the pain of uh, acting out of harmony with love yourself, that pain is always an indicator that something's wrong. Because God, 
It's not God that created pain. God just created the potentiality of, our, of it in our existence. We ourselves, through our will, create all of our pain. So does that help with... Yep, if we can go... Hi, AJ. How you doing? Um, first of all, I want to thank you for, and you and Mary for what you're doing. Uh, finally, Thanks. someone making sense. <laughs> um, Thanks. Well, my question more of a global scale. Yep. Um, looking at the mess that we're in right now. The um, global mess that we're living in yes, right now? Yes, yep. in the, all aspects, ecological like you say, we all look like we damaged goods with all our emotional yep. Uh, yep. Um, damages. Um, back in the history, um, did we as a humanity came to this situation or there's been outside forces or, as we say... Um, That's a good question. Um, it depends who you define as humanity. Well, as a... As a well, human beings, <laughs> yep. us. I actually define spirits as human beings too. So, um, so if, we look at, if we look at all the people who have ever died, and they're all human still, in my, my feelings, and all of the people who are currently on Earth, and yes, as a collective total, we created today's situation. That's very true. So there was no outside help? There um, was no um, manipulation? No. It, it's, if I can describe what happened... So initially God created all of us little souls that had yet to incarnate, right? When we incarnated, of course, we go through the process of separation from our soulmate. And obviously we get the two bodies, the spirit and material bodies that are a part of that creation. All right? Sorry about the dress there, girls. And, and our soul separates in that process of incarnation. Now, God created, God created firstly a pristine universe. And the beauty of what, one of the amazing things about God is that I personally feel the more amazing thing about God is not what she created, but what she created as the potential to exist. Um, and in other words, the laws that she created, I actually feel are even more powerful than what she created. Because it's the laws that she created that created a whole group of potentialities of new things that we are then partly creating ourselves as a part of God's creation. And the beauty of what God created is, yes, God created us as perfect souls and we incarnated, but God also gave us, as a part of this beautiful gift, the gift of free will. And the gift of free will, while many of us may have judgment about it in our current state, the truth is it's the, it's the most beautiful gift you can imagine giving anyone. It's, uh, and, and you look at it even with your own children sometimes, uh, those of you who have had children, you'll realise that it's such a beautiful gift you can give them, this gift of allowing them to do exactly what they want at any point in time, taking full responsibility in that point in time for all of their actions. And it's a beautiful gift. And God gave us this gift, which when we incarnated, we started to experiment with. So from the moment that you entered your mother's womb, you are now experimenting with the gift of this free, of free will. You know, in your mother's womb, you, you, know, you stretch your leg and you experience the, 
the free will inside of the womb as much as you can of seeing a little foot poke out for a, for a moment and that's the little child already beginning to experiment with its own will. Something that mum probably didn't appreciate at the time, particularly if it was kicking into her bladder or something like that. So right from that moment, from the, from the time the child in, incarnated, they're experiencing this gift of free will and starting to express it. Now in the process of expressing it, we have choice. And one of the primary choices that God gave us is this choice to be self-reliant or the choice to be God-reliant. And uh, if I could put that down as the primary choice that many of us still actually face right now. Right? Self-reliance or God-reliance. One of those two things. Now, the majority of us have sometimes God-reliance, sometimes self-reliance. That's how we live our life. You know, sometimes what we do is we have self-reliance most of the time until it gets too hard for ourselves and then we decide in that moment which is usually a moment of crisis uh, to be God reliant for a few moments sometimes a day, a week, a month or whatever and then because of all sorts of external factors we go straight back into self-reliance that's often what we do but the first human couple who were created also had the same choice and they had the choice of self-reliance and God reliance now for many years they, they chose God reliance they started growing and cho choosing to God realize but then they realized that actually they felt that they would like to be God in other words to have total control of everything so so at the moment if you could think of God God has created all of these laws so that anarchy cannot exist in her universe but what man wants to do is break as many of the laws as possible and the reason why we do want to do that is because we want to believe that we are gods and one of the most damaging teachings on this planet, I feel, is actually the belief that we are gods. Because when we start believing that we are gods, we start feeling that we have the right to make the law. And in reality, the laws are already made. And I can imagine I have the right to make the law as much as I want, but the, the actual truth is that God's already made all the laws that are necessary for the entire universe to operate. And in the process of that, I start choosing self-reliance because I start feeling like I want to make my own rules. I want to live my life by my own rules. Not understanding that just like a car has been designed by somebody and if you do to that car what the manufacturer says, there's a pretty good chance you get a long life out of the car. But if you, you do what, the opposite to what the manufacturer says, there's a pretty good chance the life of the vehicle is going to be much shortened. The same applies to our soul. And that is, if I do what the manufacturer designed for my soul to do, my soul will grow and expand and keep growing and expanding forever. But if I decide to choose self-reliance, what I'm going to finish up doing is being limiting my growth and in fact, in many cases, shrinking my soul because I'm actually doing the opposite to what is good for my own soul. And so what happened was the first human couple decided this course of self-reliance and, and, and by the way, it's the same choice every one of us face today. And this choice, whether you're perfect or not, is a choice you are confronted with every moment of your life. Are you going to be God-reliant or are you going to be self-reliant? That's the choice we face. Now, in the process of choosing self-reliance, every single thing that you call the mess on earth today has been created. 
every single thing. And I had a talk recently with a group of people in Butterham and I said, let's for a moment separate what God has created from what people have created. Because this is what we forget to do. You know, most of the time what we do is we look at the whole world and we say God created that. The truth is that God only created the potential of that by giving you free will. So let's look at what God actually created and what we actually created. Now God created trees, mountains, you know, all of the, all of the ecosystems that we see, they are all the things God created. What does man do with them? Well man gets them and gets the best of it and turns it into the worst of it. That's what we do. So what we, do, what we did in Australia, for example, is we found the biggest trees and what did we do with them? We didn't put a protection around and say, this is the biggest tree, we're going to honour this tree. What did we do instead? We saw it down and we used it in a house and we only leave the smallest trees, um, which often take, what, six, seven, eight hundred years to grow to those biggest trees. And so now it's very rare for us to go into a forest where there's actually 800-year-old or 1,000-year-old trees. Like, you, you can, in Queensland, you can drive for, for thousands of kilometres without seeing one, even though there's forests everywhere. And the reason why is because we take what God has created, this pristine thing God has created, and out of our self-reliance, we're no longer trusting that everything's going to be provided for us, so we've got to provide for ourselves. So what we decided to do is get the biggest tree, cut it down, turn it into blocks of wood that we can build a house with, not realising that actually what we've done is destroyed the environment for generations, you know, in the case of a tree, usually for another 10 generations we've destroyed the environment just in that one act. And, and we've got to start looking at what we're creating through self-reliance. Every single problem we have on earth, so let's look at them, we've got the problem of economics on the earth at the moment, right? Where man has become self-reliant in terms of who gets what. So in other words, I, economics is not the even distribution of money, as you well know. Economics is a, desire, a power play of the persons in power as to who gets what. And what we finish up doing with our so-called economics is we rate the poorer countries so the richer countries can get richer. And, and then we rate the, rich, the poorer people in the richer countries so the richer people in the richer countries can get richer. And in the end, it all goes back and funnels back into some very few people on this planet that actually have the power in the in So the when does it end? Yeah. Then we've got the environmental problems, right? Right. We no longer trust that we can look after ourselves in a manner that's uh, harmonious with the environment because we've become self-reliant. We're not God-reliant anymore. We don't know how things really work anymore. And so what we do is we rely on our own intuition and our own knowledge of how things work, which is often very flawed. And what we do is we finish up destroying the environment just through our day-to-day -day acts. Many of us totally unconscious of what's going on on a day-to-day -day level even in terms of our life and how it is in destroying the environment. And we could start listing everything, couldn't we? We could start listing the medical profession. Medicine. Right, politics. You know, all these different areas where, where the world is out of harmony. Right? And out of harmony with love. We know, we know it's out of harmony with love. And if it's out of harmony with love, it's automatically out of harmony with truth. And this is another thing that we need to understand inside of ourselves is if something isn't loving, it also is untruthful. Right? So there's no truth in it either. So the, the current economic system, environmental system, medical system, political system, 
and so on and so on and so on, all these different systems we've created out of our own self-reliance have all been created because in the original place we walked away from God. Because when you, when you walk away from God, you're left with your own experimentation without God. That's the problem. And when you're left with your own experimentation without God, you've got to go through what's called this scientific method, which isn't really very scientific, because the most scientific thing to do would be to connect to the person who created everything and get him to tell you how everything works. That would be the most scientific and logical thing to do. But what we do instead is we say, no, no, we can't connect with the person. Most of us have actually come to the point where we don't even believe that person exists. So how can you connect to a person who you feel doesn't exist? And then secondly, if we do believe he exists, we believe he's a punishing God, so we can't connect to him there. And then we have many other beliefs which prevent the connection. So in the end, that leaves us only free to experiment. And when we experiment, we start creating an economic system that's very self-reliant, not God-reliant, is not based around God's principles, based around what we think is right. And then we create an environmental system and a medical system and a political system and every other system that we've created. And every one of them has so much lack of harmony with love in them. And it all begins from the one emotion. This emotion that I want to determine my own life, thank you very much, and I'm not going to listen to God about my life. That's where it begins. But I, I don't see people changing uh, or fighting against the government because the, the government don't, don't let us breathe, you know? And, um, yep. Well, there's, there's unless, really... unless you're going to fly in a, in a white robe and everyone will get convinced and... Well, they'll, well, they'll change their view. Well, Otherwise, could, people will just... You could fly in a right robe and everyone could be... <laughs> not yet. So, so don't put it all on me that I've got to do it and you get away with not doing it. But secondly, um, there's, two, there's two points that we need to realise with any change. The first one is that something is wrong. We need to admit to ourselves that something is wrong. So many of us don't even want to admit to ourselves in our own life that something is wrong, let alone that something is wrong in a bigger sense, like in the worldwide sense, right? So first, the first step is to admit to ourselves that in our own life something is wrong. Right? So I, I have to come to an acknowledgement of myself that I am in a place of self-reliance. I'm not in a place of God-reliance. That there's something wrong with that. Why do I choose that? It's because I've got this emotion, that emotion, this emotion. I need to be open to feeling. And if I open myself up to feeling, I will automatically, if I long for God's love, open myself up to God. And as a result of that, my heart will start to change. And as my heart changes, my brightness increases. And as my brightness increases, so does everyone else's notice of the brightness increasing. So as, and this is what I meant by your, let your light shine to the world. So as you deal with your emotions and release the negative emotions and become more God-reliant, this light or brightness increases in you. And everyone around you and all the spirits around you see it. And as a result of that, they say, I, I want something of what he's got. You know, like, what has he got? There's something he's got that I, I don't feel, but I, I, I like it, you know. And they then start wanting to listen to extra truth as a result of that. And this is how change will occur. Once one of us chooses in a certain location to live this life, you'll find automatically around you other people start choosing. But we're so dependent on the system. Um, well, that... You will go through an emotion that, where you will not be, be dependent on the system anymore. And you will actually start living your life independent of the system. And that's what I meant by saying 
you will be in the world, but not of the world. Does that make sense? What will happen is you'll get to a point where you deal with different emotions and you'll start realising, actually, this system doesn't define how I will live my life anymore. Yeah, but if I go against it, I'll, I'll be put in jail or something like that. Well, no, see, no, that, that's, a, you, if, that's in, a fear. You see, and fear is one of the biggest things we need to get rid of within ourselves. And remember, we get rid of it by feeling it, not by denying it. So, yes, that is a statement of fear, and for the majority of us, that fear will be realised while I have that fear within me. But if I, if I release that fear, I'll get to a point where I love the system. Remember, you'll get to the point where you love everything, which means also loving the system that you're living in. And you'll love it enough to see its error, but also be able to act in a way that's loving towards it. Now, when you do that, you'll find you'll confront the system, but the system won't bite you in the bottom every time you confront the system anymore because you're in a state where there's no fear. And it's the fear that attracts the, the rear-end kicks that we get from the system. Does that make sense? So, so the reality is, as we deal with our emotions, right, what will happen of fear, release those emotions of fear, we'll get into a higher state of love. As we get into a higher state of love, the system that we're afraid of, we're no longer afraid of anymore. And because we're no longer afraid of it anymore, it harms us less. Because anything we're afraid of automatically has a law of attraction. But it might take a long time, you know? And you're not denying that... Now the... you're expressing another fear. <laughs> Can you see that? Yeah, but you're not denying that there's some earth changing coming up. Yeah, but I'm not afraid of them. I think they're going to be a good thing. Um, I'm, not af I'm not denying there's going to be economic collapse, and there will be, but, but I'm not afraid of that either. I think it's going to be a good thing. It's my fear of these things that generates them in more intensity. If I, I, I can't wait for it. <laughs> yep, but, but in a way you say, but, but you've got to be very careful of this emotion that you do have, and that is, I can't wait for it, but what do I do in between now and then? Well, what you do in between now and then is you learn how to love and live in truth 100% of the time, come what may. That's what you do between now and then. And if you can do that, it'll come quicker. These changes will come quicker because you'll be a part of those changes. It'll, they'll come faster, but also you'll be in a state where you can live in that place without the economic system that we have now, without the medical system we have now, without the political system we have now, and you'll be comfortable living in that place. To be frank with you, there'll be millions of people on this planet in a totally uncomfortable position living in that place. You, you imagine for a moment, in the US of A, if you wiped out law, every single person there pretty much has a gun. Now, how many people are afraid in the USA, do you feel, are actually afraid of wiping out law? Now, in the end, we don't need any other law than God's laws. So in the end, all mankind's laws are going to go. So, so imagine in the U living in the USA, you're there sitting in Texas, right? and, and where, where the, the, everyone in the population pretty much has a gun, and they've all got their shells in their you know, upstairs room and their guns stored in their closet, and all of a sudden they've got no food and they've got no water, and they've got no economic means of getting those things, what do you think is going to result in that moment? With the ones who are afraid, what's going to happen? They're going to exercise their fear, and within three to five days... Anarchy. Anarchy. Mm -hmm. 
But when you say you're going to love the system when you deal well, when with your emotions, how can you, when you say, when you talk, you teaching us truth, how can we love the system when we see the, the environmental damage, the oil spills, the cutting down of the trees? How can we um, go along with that? Well, can I just relate it to how God feels about us? God loves us even though we're doing all of these damaging things. God hasn't abandoned us. We walk away from God. So, so the truth is that when I'm at one with God, I can also love a person who's cutting down a tree. Right? And I can actually respect the fact that that's where they're at and that's, I don't have to agree with them cutting down the tree, but I'm not going to violently oppose them cutting down the tree. I'm not going to strap myself to the tree while they stop themselves from cutting it, to try to stop them from cutting it down, because I respect their free will and I love them. And so I say, well, if you want to cut down my tree, you can cut down my tree. But it's not the right thing to do. It's not a loving thing to do. But I, because I'm not invested in the fact that this is my tree or my thing or my that, just like God isn't invested in it either, God allows people to cut down his trees. And God, you don't see God screaming with rage with a you know, pitchfork coming down saying, you cut down my trees and I'm going you know, to get you in some way. God doesn't do that, so you won't do that. You will actually love the person even in their act of doing something that's unloving. That's the love, the amount of love that you'll have. You'll be able to love them even in their act of them trying to torture you. Uh, you'll be able to love them in that situation. You won't feel afraid anymore. That's where God is and that's where you will be when you're at one with God. Now, now in the interim, obviously, I'm not there. So I've got this fear that I need to work on and I've got this anger I need to work on, I've got this grief that I need to work on and I can choose to work on it relying on God through the process or I can choose to avoid it. Now if I choose to work on it I am now helping the planet heal. If I choose to avoid it then I am being a part of this system that's damaging the, 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 the earth. So to give you an example just the one act of eating meat let's just look at that one act. Now Many of us wouldn't go and slit the lamb's throat. So you imagine a little baby lamb in front of you and you're asked to slit its throat, skin it, gut it and then eat it. Now by the time most of you in the audience would have done the first three things, the fourth, the eating of it, would be pretty impossible for us in that place, right? And, and if we connect with our emotions, we can feel how terrible it feels to actually kill a living thing and then do all of those things to it, right? And we can feel it inside of ourselves. Then if we look at the damage that's being done to the environment because we're eating meat, there are whole, like all of the, um, pretty much all of the forests of the earth are being destroyed in order, in order to create beef stations, pretty much. And, and the majority of them are coming because we want meat, right? So all of a sudden, all of that would also stop. So environment... So let's look at it. And firstly, environmental things would stop as soon as I chose to not eat meat, if we did it on a collective level, I'm saying. You know, the, a lot of the economic system would change very rapidly. Instead of us being dependent on meat, we'd have more focus on other vegetables and other things. And because vegetables can be grown in smaller locations, we'd destroy less of the environment as a, as a result. If you look at what's going on in terms of power, the beef barons or whatever in many of these countries that are doing this destruction would no longer have the power because they only have power through demand and we're no longer providing a demand. 
So, so therefore the power structure all changes just automatically by us choosing to eat fruit and vegetables. Does that make sense? It's just that one loving act. So all of a sudden I'm just changing one thing in my life, just one, and now that one thing is going to have an impact on the rest of the world. And if we did that collectively, you imagine the huge impact it would have. At the moment, very few native animals exist anywhere in the world because of our desire to eat meat. And, and in Australia even, what we do is we burn a lot of the undergrowth forests. Like in Queensland, you see this happening everywhere. Where what we do is we get, poison a lot of the big trees, cut them all down. Some of them are used for timber. Some of them they are just still standing there dead. And then what we do is we burn the undergrowth. Now, in the process of burning all the undergrowth, what happens is all of the native wildlife, all the smaller native birds and animals that need this undergrowth to survive, can't survive anymore. So they all just automatically die off. So now, you know, we've got like, in, in just one little location in New South Wales, there's 1,200 endangered species of, of animals and birds. Like... 1,200 endangered species. So just because of our desire to do this for the sake of our eating meat. And at some point, we've got to say to ourselves, is this all worth it? And is also, is this all loving? And if it's not, what causes the desire to eat meat inside of myself? What, what emotion inside of myself drives me to eat meat? And when I address that issue and bring that just that one issue into harmony with love, we have the power to change so many things in the world just from that one issue. Now imagine if all of us did that with five different issues, not just the issue of eating meat, but the issue of how we treated women, how we treated men, how we treated children, and so forth. You imagine then the changes that would happen, quite large changes. Do you want to come up here and speak? One of Mary's favourite subjects. So. <laughs> it is. I always... Uh talk about this subject because when I met AJ as like lots of people have probably heard me say by now I was full of anger at the system and I wanted to change the world and I was involved in humanitarian things environmental things I was really um, I had a lot of rage and when I met AJ I was very confronted because he said what he just said to you you know in the end you're going to love those things you're going to love the system and I could, I could connect to a desire to, yeah, maybe I want to love people, but I don't ever want to love that system because it just is abhorrent to me. Um, but what I realised when I started on this path is I actually had a lot of really deep grief about feeling the hopelessness that um, I felt like... I felt so cynical. I felt that it can't change. I can feel everything horrible that's happening out there and, and it can't change. And I didn't want to feel the grief of that, so I got angry and I wanted to take action in order to avoid that grief. Uh, and so I did some grieving about it. Uh, and I've probably still got more there because uh, I still sometimes find it really hard to hope uh, that this dream that we have is going to come to fruition. Um, but what I, have do, what I have come to after feeling some of that grief um, was a deeper sense of compassion and a knowledge about emotions that everyone who um, is cutting down the tree or who's going to war is in deep fear, that they're not feeling something. And um, it's only through their ability to feel their emotions that they will change their actions. And... I decided that's where I want to change the world. I want to do that for myself. I want to be not be afraid of any emotion so that I can live freely and in love all of the time 
Yeah. We, we watched a... Um, what did we watch? We watched Saving Private Ryan recently, and it's a movie that I could never watch before, and um, I cried pretty much from the opening credits to the end ones. But at the end of it, I came out of it with this deepened resolve because I could feel everyone in that movie was avoiding an emotion. They weren't, they weren't feeling like they could feel their terror, they weren't feeling like they could make a different choice, that they had to avoid what was happening there, that they, um, they couldn't forgive because they were carrying all this grief that they weren't letting themselves feel. And um, at the end of it, I, just, I felt the only way we're ever going to change the world is for any of us to have the feeling inside of us, I can cope with any emotion and I can feel it, to its end, and that's the only way I'll be able to make a more loving choice. Yeah. So, obviously, Mary and myself have, uh, and maybe I should speak for myself only, <laughs> um, have a deep desire to, to get across to everyone that actually when you choose to feel your own emotions about things, things around you will automatically change. And as things around you automatically change, other people will be attracted to you because of the things around you changing. And as a result of that, they will then start to desire the same kind of change. And as they desire the same kind of change, they then affect everyone around them in the way in which they change. And as a result of that, we've finished up having thousands and thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands, and eventually millions of people, and eventually billions of people living in a state of love with each other and not in a state of fear. Because remember, fear really, the, the base fear comes from this act of self-reliance. And the problem with self-reliance is we get to a point where we say, I have to feel everything that's inside of me. And then I go, whoa, 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 I don't want to feel that. That's, that's too intense. And we actually, from a very young age now, are being taught that we're incapable of coping with our own emotion. We're taught that, that we need other people to actually help us feel our own emotion. You know, how many of us are taught it's dangerous to feel your own emotion unless a psychologist is present? Like, that, that's so prevalent now on the planet, like, where you've got to be with somebody who knows their business about emotions before you're able to feel your own emotion. And, like, can you imagine saying that to your baby? Like, mm -hmm. oh, don't cry, you know, we've got to send you to the psychologist first, you know. Mm -hmm. um, of course not. The baby is totally comfortable feeling its own emotions, and yet, by the time we're an adult, we're totally uncomfortable with it. And so, as Mary said, like, without our our belief in ourselves that we are capable of coping with every single emotion that is thrown at us and we are capable of feeling it inside of ourselves without damaging another person. We are totally capable of that. And once we start believing we are totally capable of that, then we have the, then we're in a, in a place where we can actually change the world because we'll start affecting people around us having the same feeling. And... Uh, and, while, and the question you began with, with this is, how long is it going to take, basically? And, and my feelings are, it can happen in a very rapid time. But it needs a group of people who are first in this place where they understand it and understand the power of connecting to your own emotions fully and connecting to God fully. And when you're in this powerful place emotionally, now you have the ability to help everyone around you to be in that same powerful place. And we need a good few thousand of people like that, you know, people who are in that place. And if you start with a few thousand people like that, um, and initially to get a few thousand, we need a few hundred. And then to get a few hundred, we need a 10 or 20. 
And to get 20 or 20, we need one or two. So that's how it starts, right? Where we get one or two, 10 or 20, few hundred, few thousand of us in that place. Can you imagine if there's a few thousand of us in Australia in this place? Everyone around, like, this so-called a six degrees of separation between people. In other words, I know someone who knows you personally six steps away from me, you know? So, so um, the truth is that we are so tightly connected with each other we just don't realise it a lot of the times. But, but sooner or later, your change, I'm going to get to see. When you change, I'll see it at some point in my life. Because there's only six steps between you and me in terms of people. And if you, if you bear that in mind, what that means is, as you change, sooner or later, I will see it. And sooner or later, I'll go, wow, like, that's different, he's different. I, I want some of that. Sooner or later, I will. Sooner or later, I'll connect with that within myself. And so all we need at the moment is really 10, 20, 30, 50, 100,000, a couple of thousand people in that place. And then you imagine a couple of thousand people in that place and then economic system changes because of different things that happen. So all of a sudden, imagine that everyone on earth lost all of their savings in one economic downturn. Now that's going to bring up a lot of emotions for most of us, isn't it? Just that one thing. Now, if a, if, if a thousand of us are prepared for that, emotionally prepared for that, we're in a place where we know how to handle all of that. Now, can you imagine what all the others are going to... They're all going to be attracted to the thousand who are in that place, aren't they? How do you live your life? You seem to still not be affected by it all. How come that is? What's going on for you? How, how did you get to that place? Why aren't you upset? You know? Why aren't you afraid? And then... You imagine then if there all of a sudden there's big earth changes that occur and you're not afraid, you're in this powerful place where you've dealt with that fear as well and you're not afraid there either. You imagine everyone who's been affected by those earth changes, is going to, sooner, sooner or later they're going to come to you, why aren't you afraid? What's going on with you? Why, you know, what, what, and, and these are all opportunities then that you have to teach them the truth of to why you're not afraid anymore and why you feel the way you feel now. Now, if we had a thousand people in that space... Just imagine, like, like, like what myself and Mary have noticed is just, just in now travelling around, so you could say two people in the place, there's thousands of people who are influenced in that place as a result. Influenced, not influenced by me telling them what to do, but influenced in their heart to actually make changes in their own lives. And you're one of them. It looks like there's close to like 80 or 90, maybe 100 people, right? Now, imagine if there's all of us in that place, just for a moment, and in that place, what other people are going to see around us. And they will then be influenced to also get into a similar place. Sorry, if we can just have the mic back up there and you can... I've got so many questions, I can <laughs> talk all day. Um, it's like a hundred monkey effect, yeah? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know if I agree with the 100 monkey principle, but it's, we could call it the same thing. Yeah. In other words, when your soul changes, it's going to have an effect on the rest of the world. Definitely. And if enough of our souls change, even one of our souls changing has an effect on the rest of the world. Like, you, you look back 2,000 years, one person changing had an effect on the world. One person. So how did that happen? Just you, one person changing. Yeah. Not a hundred of you. You don't need a hundred of you. One person is going to affect the rest of the world. 
Hi. Can I ask you to elaborate on one thing you touched on very briefly? You mentioned something about uh, torture, I think was your word. Um, if you get to the stage where you can love someone who chops down trees, if, if that is what you're against, um, if someone is physically or mentally torturing you, is it against your own love for yourself and your body not to stand up against that? Um, there's a difference between standing up for something and actually being and and actually then projecting violence back. As soon as you make the step of of being violent in return, or, or then basically you are choosing to become like them. And in the process of choosing to become like them, you are now stepped out of God's laws and into your own self-reliance. And in that place, you are not in a loving place. So yes, what I'm actually saying is that you'll get to a place where you can personally be tortured and still love the person who's torturing you. And Whether it is mental or physical, yep. um, I guess is regardless, but that that is the most loving thing that you can do for yourself and your soul to accept that? Well, I'm not saying you wouldn't try to get out of the situation, but you wouldn't use violent means to try to get out of the situation. So, so yes, you could try to reason yourself out of the situation and if, if you had the option of leaving, you would certainly leave. But if you didn't have the option of leaving and you didn't have the option of, of anything other than violence, you wouldn't choose violence in order to get out of the situation. Because in choosing violence, all you do is become the perpetrator of violence. And this is a big thing on the earth today, is we feel there is such a thing as justified violence, and there isn't. As soon as you start justifying violence, you start justifying war, and you start justifying all sorts of things after that. And, and it's, our, it's our desire to justify violence that causes us to, in the end, become violent. And what we need to realise is what we need to justify is love. So we need to look at, all right, there's a very good reason for me to stay in this place where I'm not violent, no matter how much violence is perpetrated against myself. There's, the, the powerful reason is I can change things that way. And if you have a look at people in history who have attempted this on a, on a wider scale than just one person, Gandhi is one of those people. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie about Gandhi's life or, or have read much about Gandhi, but Gandhi was a believer in non-violent protest. So in other words, what he would do, and there's a lovely uh, scene in his movie where he's in South Africa and they protested against the apartheid uh, in South Africa and in particular the way in which they'd use Indian people in different, in different uh, jobs. And what the, the, many of the people who were supporting Gandhi at the time decided to do was they decided to just not do the job. And they would go to work and not do the job. So they'd go there and just, just, they'd, they'd, they'd just sit there or stand there. Now, many of them got beaten senseless in the process, but after about two or three days of getting beaten, the whole world was in an outcry about the violence that was being perpetrated towards people who weren't retaliating. You see, as soon as you retaliate, now there's a justification. But if you don't ever retaliate, how can anybody justify their continual violence towards you? They can't, in the end. And sooner or later, enough people on the planet will notice it and will actually step out of this place of feeling that violence is justified and into the place where they feel that violence isn't justified, particularly towards people who are not violent in return. And... The beauty of getting into that place is you can change things very rapidly.
So Gandhi, in his own course of his own life, changed many things very rapidly as a result of his desire to have this non-violent protest in his own life. And that was with, even without connecting with God and without connecting to other things, although Gandhi himself was connected with God, many of the people who, who applied his principles were not. But they still accomplished great things by not justifying violence anymore. I guess uh, my question sort of stems more on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I guess personally, um, something that I have no direct knowledge or experience of, but I have a lot of close friends, and not to mention an unsavoury topic, but a lot of female friends who've gone through something traumatic like rape, and what comfort can you give them other than, well, when you're in a position around other people, um, try and put some procedures in place, but when it comes a one-on-one -on -one confrontation, to just accept it and to live with that. And I'm not saying that they have to accept it. What I'm saying is that there are emotions within them. In the case of a rape, for example, there are emotions they will definitely feel. Like if you're being attacked on any level, whether it be violently physically or violently sexually, you're going to have emotions to feel. If you believe that you cannot cope with those emotions, that's when you'll retaliate with the same kind of violence. If you believe inside of yourself and you know that you can cope with anything that's thrown at you, including physical violence or rape or any of these other things, and you know that all you need to do is feel your emotions to release it, then you can get through it without retaliating violently. But secondly, in all of these different things, we ask these questions living from a point of self-reliance. You see, we don't look at the fact that there is reasons why we attract events as well. So, for example, if someone's violent towards me, there's something inside of me that's attracting this violence as well, right? And I need to look at what's inside of me. And the only person I can change is me. So I, I can only change my fear of the violence, if you like. Now, ironically, when I change my fear of the violence, I will have less violence perpetrated against me because the law of attraction is in operation at all times, which means that actually when I'm afraid of violence, there's a higher likelihood of violence occurring towards myself. When I'm less afraid of violence, there is a less chance of violence occurring towards myself. Now, it doesn't mean it might not happen. It just means there's a less chance. But if I also have the belief that anything that's thrown at me, I can emotionally handle, and I know that I can handle all of my own emotions, because I know I'm connected with God and I've got God's help through every emotion, then I'm not worried about what's going to happen to me ever and this is the state all of us can live in where we're no longer afraid of what can happen to us and when we're no longer afraid of what can happen to us we no longer perpetrate acts of violence towards others in in deference to fear because what finishes up happening if you think about it remember remember i said right at the beginning here with this diagram that our fear is something we need to focus on if i if i live in my fear eventually I will justify becoming violent to someone else. Now, to give you an example on a global scale, the US government has justified preemptive violence on the basis that the other person might do it to them. So what we finish up doing is we start justifying preemptive violence. We actually start justifying being violent to someone else before they're even violent to us in order to prevent their violence to us. And that is just all an act of fear in the end. It's all about perpetrating and deepening our own fears. You see, when we're connected with God, we know we can actually experience every single thing, including torture, rape, abuse, all sorts of things. We can, we can experience all of those things and we can come out of every one of them. 
and we know we can come out of them in a pristine state actually once we're in this state where we're fully connected with God. The irony is when we're fully connected with God the likelihood of these events occurring are also much less because we're not attracting them into our lives due to our fear. So, so we have positive effects either way if we, if we choose to not act in violence in, in any situation. Now that being said, in the case of someone like rape, there are often many things at play. Many people get themselves into dangerous situations because of choices they make that if they were more connected with their own emotions at the time, they wouldn't have made that choice. So, for example, many rapes occur under the influence of alcohol. Why is that? Because if the woman didn't have the drink, often they'd be more sensitive to the violent, sexually violent men around them that when they have the drink, they're less sensitive to it because they're less connected with their own emotion. So, so when I walk into a room, I can feel every sexually violent man in the room. Right? Now, a woman in that place, if they walk into the room, could feel every sexually violent man in the room, she would go, wow, this is not a very good place to be. Straight away, she'd feel that inside of herself if she was sensitive to that emotionally. So would she remain there? And would she go in there and have a drink with one of them? Probably not. Now, I'm not saying that she's to blame for the rape, but what I'm saying is that there's a whole law of attraction of events that occurred to place the person in the situation where they're harmed. And often, we are not looking at the choices we make getting to the place. We just look at the event and we say, oh, the person's to blame for the event, or the person who raped was to blame for the event, which, of course, they are, but that's not looking at why was I sitting next to them in the train? What, what was going on there for me? What series of choices did I make to get to that place? And often when we look at that, we see all sorts of emotional injuries as to why I chose to be sitting next to this person that I couldn't feel could potentially rape me. Does that make sense? When, you, we're really, of, but, but, when you're in really tune with your own emotion, you will feel the people who, will, who could easily harm you and you won't choose to be in their company. In, in that unlikely situation where that a, a hypothetical attack is fatal, how does that person, that soul, then deal with that? They're dead, but how does that person process that? Well, there is no, such, there is no difference between processing it when we're living here on the earth as there is in the spirit world. So the truth is you will go enter into the spirit world with exactly the same emotions as what you left here so, so, and the exactly same capacity to deal with those emotions as what you had before you left. So the answer is identical to the answer as if they stayed alive in that they only have to do with one extra thing and that is that they've passed and to be frank with you I don't feel passing is a very big event in comparison to what most people feel it and passing is just a, a part that every one of us will have to do at some point uh, whether it's before so-called our time or after our time is what we often call it and every one of us will pass at some point, every one of us will pass with the same capacity to experience emotion, our sa the same intellectual capacity as what we have right now, and the same belief systems and the same uh, moral, moral systems that we have right now, and we have the same capacity to deal with everything there as we do now here. So, so there is no difference in dealing with it when you pass or, or not. And in fact, many of the people who pass after a very, very short time after their passing would never opt to come back to their, to their earth life. So while we stay so attached to our earth life, many people who pass after a few months and many times even just after a few days 
would far more prefer to be in the spirit world than they would be prefer to be here. You see, the problem is that many of us have such a dim knowledge of the spirit world itself that we have so much fear associated with going there. But if we had a far wider knowledge of the spirit world, you would have far less fear about going there. In fact, uh, many of you would start looking forward to it <laughs> rather, than, uh, rather than being so afraid of it as a result. Hi, Eiji. How are you doing? Um, back to the divine life uh, path. How do you stay on it? Like, I've been trying for the last couple of years to completely change my life, stop eating meat, you know, stop drinking, stop smoking, and it's just not working. I keep on falling back onto it. Maybe I'm relying on myself too much. Maybe I don't pray enough, but I've been meditating. I've been seeing counselors, doing hypnotherapy, and it's just, I don't know, I really have this deep longing to change, but it just, yeah, just kind of two steps forward, one step back, or three steps back. That's what it feels like to you. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, do you, want me to? Gonna... you want to sit down? Yeah. No worries, you can sit down. I'll let you. <laughs> okay. For a start, um, what was your name again? Sorry? Serge. Serge, that's right. Um, for a start, Serge, um, your judgment of yourself is quite severe. So, and this is a problem we have uh, on the earth a lot too, is we, we judge ourselves. We notice new things in ourselves that, that we didn't notice before and then we think we're really bad because we have those things. And the more we judge ourselves, the more harder, our, the more difficult our life becomes. So one of the first things we need to stop doing is judging ourselves for having what we have. So let, let me imagine for a moment, here's a mirror Here's the reflection side of the mirror, and here's me. I'm standing in front of the mirror, right? And I've got a smile on my face, right? Looking at this mirror. Now, I can stay in that space looking at the mirror, and I can ignore the reflection that's coming back at me. In other words, I can, to a large degree, particularly with my life on Earth now, I can say things like, you know, oh yeah, you know, I've got this great big zit in the middle of my, you know, pimple in the middle of my forehead there that looks big enough for a boil and everybody's looking at that instead of my eyes, but I can ignore it. And the problem with the, here on the earth too, we could put a bit of makeup or something over it so that it sort of dims it as well, couldn't we? We, we actually finish up plastering ourselves a bit so that we don't see ourselves as we truly are. Now the point I'm getting to is, on the divine love path, we look in the mirror and we start seeing ourselves as we truly are. Right? So we're looking with this smile on our face, right? But in reality, the person who we see back is actually, wow, you're really sad, eh? <laughs> Whoa, I didn't realise how sad you were. Right? That kind of feeling, you see? So as we're on the divine love path, we're connecting more to God, we're having to become more real about who we are. Now, there's a beauty in this process, actually. But, but it's very confronting because we want to see this person now. You know, we look, go to the mirror because we want to see how good we look right now. You know, we want to, when you think about it, even when we go to the mirror to look at our personal appearance, we fix up anything on us that looks bad, you know, like just because we want to look good right now. That's our, that's our feeling. 
And so we do all of these things and, and emotionally this is what we're also doing. We have a judgment of this person that's inside of myself. Oh, he's really sad. So he could be sad, he could be afraid, you know, he could be ashamed, he had a lot of shame, he could feel a lot of sexual guilt, right? He's got all these things going on, right? All of these things are all going on that he feels inside of himself. And I'm there looking in the mirror and I'll go to the mirror and I, want, I, I don't want to see all those things. I want to see a person who's got it together, confident, hip, you know, everyone looks up to, that kind of thing. That's what we want to see. And, and so what we have a tendency to do then is we have a tendency then to judge the things that you are currently judging within yourself. The judge the sadness, judge the fear, judge the shame, judge the sexual guilt, judge all of these different things that are there. When we're on the divine love path, one of the first things that we need to come to terms with is when we judge we're actually doubling up our emotional processing work because we've got to deal with our judgment and then we get to the emotion. So, for example, what I do is I see, wow, like, yeah, actually, every time I walk down the street, I'm walking with my girl, but actually, I'm noticing all these other girls all the time, right? So I notice myself doing that. And then the next step is I go into judgment about that, right? Wow, boy, what kind of sleaze bag am I, you know? And I go into that place, which doesn't help me get to the emotional reason as to why I'm looking at all these girls in the first place. All it does is put extra emotion on top of me, which actually will make me sadder. So oftentimes what we do on the process is we see these things that we really are, and then we judge them, and that makes us feel even worse than we felt when we didn't see them. Does that make sense? And of course, we are going to feel worse because we've now got the additional emotion. Besides these, we're additionally judging ourselves for having these. Now, God doesn't judge you for having those things. God knows that the majority of them entered you in your childhood, and if they didn't enter you there, they entered you from the choices you made based on your childhood emotions. And now you're an adult, you've got all of these different emotions inside of you, and God doesn't say, I'm not going to love you, Serge, because you've got all those different things, you know. You're really sad and I don't love you anymore because of it. God's not like that, right? But we are like that with ourselves. That's the issue. Now what we've got to do is get through this process to the point where we're actually happy to see what we are ourselves. And we're happy to see ourselves, the real person in the mirror. We're happy to see that person. And we don't judge that person anymore we just want the person to heal. We just want the person to get to a place where they're in a place of love. And so I can look at my sadness now. And by the way, it took me many years to get to this place where I could look at my sadness without judging my sadness. Because what I started realizing myself is that every time I judged my sadness, it created two more emotions for me to deal with. Firstly, it created a law of compensation emotion because of me treating myself unlovingly. And secondly, the act of judgment came from a different emotion generally, like something to do with judgment from my family or my friends or whatever about sadness. And I had to deal with that. And then when I let go of that, I allowed myself to see my sadness without judgment. In fact, I allowed myself to see my sadness without, with compassion. I was actually felt a feeling of compassion towards myself for being sad. Instead of feeling a 
feeling like I wanted to hit myself in the jaw for being sad, you know? So instead of feeling judgment towards myself about sadness, I felt compassion for the sadness. Now when you start feeling that, you will also start feeling God's compassion for your sadness. And as a, the beauty of God's compassion is it enters you as, as a part of her, her love entering you and, and you start changing quite rapidly after that and you start feeling happy about what you see. So the key thing to bear in mind is if you're feeling sad about what you're seeing and you're feeling like you're making two steps forward and then three backwards, right? So you're going up once, up twice, and then bam, 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 and then up once, up twice, and boom, boom, boom. Like this is how it feels. You know, two more up and boom, 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 down. And eventually you feel like now I'm down in the hills. The truth is that your soul was possibly there in the first place. We're now just seeing it for the first time and we can love ourselves in that condition. We can actually not have judgment about that condition. We can actually say, all right, now I'm seeing myself as God sees me. Now I'm looking in the mirror and instead of expecting to see this, whole, this beautiful character, I'm seeing all of my flaws and all of my failings and all of my problems and all of my unhealed emotions and I can smile for the first time because I'm being real. Now I'm being real. And the beauty of that is now, because I can see them, I now have the capacity to change them. You see, if I can't see them, how can I change them? If I don't know what's there, how can I fix it? Right? See, for most of us, it's like there's this pile of crap, pile of, let's, let me use more vulgar parlance, there's a pile of shit in the corner of our room, for most of us, and what we do is we walk around it saying it smells nice. That's what we do. And, and when we look at another person's pile of shit, we walk around that and say, yours smells nice too. <laughs> That's what we do. Because we want to have everyone feel good, right? Including ourselves. But when we're on the divine love pass, we look at that pile of shit and we say, that's a pile of shit, eh? <laughs> in other words, for the first time in our lives, we say that what it really is, right? For the first time, we say, wow, that's a pile of shit. Now, instead of, instead of now judging it, we're willing to get out the shovel and turn it into manure for our garden, right? That's what we're willing to do, right? For the first time in our lives. And once we get into that place where we don't judge the pile of shit that's in the corner and we actually look at the fact that we're now turning ourselves into this beautiful thing that can grow, now we can look at all of these things that are within us without feeling like we're going backwards all the time. You'll actually start feeling like you're going forwards. The truth is on the planet today, your soul can degrade in its condition. And in fact, when people start as children, they often degrade from that condition. So they, they enter the, into the womb in a six-sphere condition. By the time they exit the womb, they're usually in a second-sphere condition. And by the time they're two or three years of age, they're in a first-sphere condition along with their parents. Generally, that's the way it is in terms of our digression, if you like, in terms of spiritual progress. The truth is that we can reverse that condition, but only by coming to see the truth of what we are without judgment. As soon as you judge it, as soon as you have a feeling of self-punishment about what's there, you're actually now locking yourself up so much and you're, and you're doing the additional thing of being unloving to yourself. And one of the primary things we need to learn on the divine love path is to ha how to be loving to myself. 
And once I learn that, I, I see these things in me and I go, wow, yeah, I'm a bit of a mess this morning. You know, it's like, it's like getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror, right? And all of a sudden you see all the lines, you know, from the heavy night before. And when you think about it, what we're doing is we're looking in the mirror emotionally and we're seeing all this damage from our heavy life. So, so it's a bit like looking in the mirror after a heavy night, you know. Oh, and a bloodshot eyes and look a mess and the hair's everywhere and everything's a mess and you know a bit of snot dribbling out maybe and you know a bit of blood on our cheek from somebody I don't know who that was from and you know what I mean like there's this mess that's reflected back and I can say yeah that's a mess now and what we don't we don't go we don't we don't say to that mirror generally in the morning in our physical life we don't go gee you're a mess all right what's the point of dealing with any of that I might as well just go and bawl about it for the rest of my life. We don't do that. What we do when we look at that mirror, we say, wow, I think I need a shower and I need to have a shave. And I, in other words, we go in clean-up mode, do we not? Well, that's what we need to do with our soul. Instead of judging it, we need to say, all right, I see all of these things inside of ourselves, inside of myself, but I can go into clean-up mode here. I, I have the tools available to me to show me how I can release these emotions from me, how I can actually deal with them all. And when I allow myself to release all of those, uh, I can look in the mirror again and say, wow, that sadness, that's hardly there anymore. And you know how I was afraid of all those people when I went down the shopping centre? Yeah, that wasn't, that's not there anymore. And now I can get up and talk in front of a thousand people. Right? That's, that's another fray, fear that I can t tick off of this. And you know, every time my mother tries to shame me now, I can say, no worries, Mum, you can feel I'm that way, but I'm, I'm fine with it. So I don't feel that shame anymore. And, and you'll start actually seeing the changes in yourself. And to be frank, you probably won't see them first. The people around you will probably see them first, and then you will start noticing the comments that they're making to you of how much you've changed. You see, you look at your face every morning in the mirror, and emotionally, you look at it yourself every moment. Right? But they might see you today and then two weeks later. So they'll be able to have a very, very different feeling about the changes that you've made compared to yourself. So allow yourself to see yourself as you truly are without the judgment and without the harsh criticism and without the self-punishment. Let yourself see yourself as you truly are and say, oh, I can change this. We've got the skills to do this. We've got the skills to change this. And instead of then making two steps up, three back, you'll make two step up and one back. You know what I mean? Like there'll be times when you go backwards, but you'll make progress. Every time you punish yourself, every time you treat yourself harshly, every time you're very self-critical and all of those kind of things, you're, you're just adding to your own burden and you don't need to. God is not like that with you. Like God, God's not there with a cracking the whip up there going like, and I say up there as a, in terms of a terminology, going at you saying, yeah, you're a terrible person. Yeah, I saw you today. You were so afraid. I think I need to punish you for that as well. You know? And so every time I punish myself for being afraid, can you see I am actually in direct disharmony with what God's opinion of me is in that moment. Right? And as a result of that, I'll feel the pain of that, obviously. And when I bring myself into harmony with God's opinion of me, which is God loves me no matter what my condition is, and when I can feel the wondrousness of that, I will actually no longer continue this cycle of self-judgment. And for myself and for Mary, it's been the self-punishing cycles, isn't it, darling, that 
have been the most difficult to get out of and they are also the most distressing um, situations that you get into. But if you can start seeing yourself as you truly are without the desire to punish yourself for being that person, then you will grow very, very rapidly. Yeah. Thank you. It's three now, is it? Yeah, if I go for another quarter of an hour or something, we have a break. Hi, AJ. How are you doing? This is my first introduction here yep. to you and to the DVDs. What's your purpose and what are you teaching? Because yeah, I know that you're answering questions and stuff, but I'm not really understanding what your purpose is and what you want to share to the world or to us. Um, in a nutshell, I would like what I want to share to the world is the, this, this process that God is offering every person. And that is God is offering you the gift of her love to the point where you can become at one with God. And this, this offer has been available to us as a human race for 2,000 years. Very few people on the earth have ever taken the offer. And, but this, this offer is available to every single person. And it's very practical in the sense it's not like spirituality as you would normally conceive it, you know, religious spirituality or new age spirituality, which is often very impractical and, and not very logical. All the things that God offers, as you would expect, would be highly scientific and very logical. And what God is offering us is this beautiful gift of this love that can enter us and transform us. And my primary desire, and it's not a purpose, but rather a desire, is to teach that to every person. Um, now, in the process of that, every, every, everything you get taught, you'll start joining the dots together of your existence in the process of receiving all those truths. But that's a side benefit, in my opinion, of this one connection that a person can have with God. For most of us, we start off with no connection with God at all. We don't even know, perhaps, whether God exists or believe that God exists. And, and my, my encouragement of people in that condition is just experiment with it and see. Just experiment with all of this truth and just see whether it is true through experimentation, through your own life. And, and most people that have done that are then, then become convinced that it is true in their own life. And it's not something that requires a blind faith or anything like that, but something that can be proven to you as, as, as true. But, but again, it requires a personal change within ourselves for it to become true. So, so my primary desire is to teach that to people on earth. And I want to do that for free, so I don't want to, that's why we don't charge anything or do any of those things, because we want to give that what... what we feel is the truth to others and I'm willing to also uh, accept that there's a lot of people who at the moment probably don't want to receive it and so I don't try to market to them or advertise to them or any of those things because I feel that's impacting upon their free will. I only want to talk to the people who want to, who have a desire to listen, if that makes sense. Aside from that, my only personal purposes are to connect to God personally and be at one with God and to be at one with my soulmate, my girl. And they are my only two primary desires. And this desire I have to teach to people is third under those two primary desires myself. Just sort of adding on to what you were saying before, um, does your truth encompass other truths as well? Um, people, are, I, I'm going to make quite a confronting statement now. Um, what I'm presenting is not my truth. 
Now, you are totally free to believe it's my truth, if that's what you wish to believe. But I, I can't take credit for any of the things that I'm teaching you at all. These are all the things that I've been taught myself through my relationship with God. So in other words, I, I feel what I'm teaching you is God's truth. Now, you don't have to accept that, and that's your call. You've got free will and you can... But you could also, just for a moment, conceive that maybe it is God's truth. Let's just experiment with it a bit to see yourself, you know what I mean? To determine whether you feel it's God's truth in the end. So what happens with most people is they initially hear me make the statement that this is God's truth, not my own. Many people go into a lot of judgment about that, thinking that I'm setting myself up as, as God or, or whatever. And that's happened for many thousands of years for me. But, but in the end, what I'm just saying is that these are the truths that I've learned from God and I'm, want, I have a passionate desire to teach. Now, you can choose to accept them or not or experiment with them or not. It's really up to yourself. Now, the people who have experimented with them and have actually done a lot of emotional work have found that the truth of it has settled in their own heart independent of, my, of myself. So how many of you have actually had a personal interaction with me before this event? If you can put up your hand. All right, so there's... Exactly, so, so there's very few, right? How many of you have actually heard about the DVD, started to put it into action, started to put all of these different things that we've been teaching into action and found that some of your life has changed as a result of it? So now, of those of you, leave your hands up if you haven't had a personal interaction with me. So if you leave your hands up, so you can see how the majority of the ones who have been putting it in practice haven't had a personal interaction with me. Now, what I'm saying is you don't need to have a personal interaction with me to determine that what I'm teaching is true or not. What you need to have is a personal interaction with God to determine what the truth is. And God, through that interaction with you, will teach you the truth as well. And in the end, you will come to see that what I'm saying to you is the truth. But you don't have to believe that in the beginning. All you need to do is be open and willing to experiment with that and just see the changes that happen as a result. I see it as a truth. I don't I know hear you do. anything that you're saying that is not true. Um, I hear it as all true. But I it's just put, that... I'll put to you something. Here's God, the yeah. creator of the universe. God knows the truth. Yeah. Would you agree? Yep. If God um, is the creator of the universe, God knows every single thing about you, mm -hmm. every single thing inside of you, Every emotional error, every emotional purity, all inside of you, God knows mm -hmm. right at this moment. Mm -hmm. God also knows the entire truth of the universe. Every single law she created, every single thing she created, the potentiality of everything that the laws create as well, God knows all of those things too. Mm -hmm. Would you not agree? Yeah. So I would say then, I could say then that God knows the absolute truth. Is that not the case? Yes. And what I'm proposing to you, just as a, something for you to consider, mm. is here's your soul. What's your name? Aaron. With two A's and R-O-N? Um, or is it Aaron? It's Y-N. Y-N. Yeah. So Aaron can personally connect to God and have God download to her the absolute truth. And then you will say, you will no longer say your truth, my truth. All you will ever be interested in after that point is God's truth 
which is the absolute truth. Absolutely, but I see myself as one facet, and even though the truth itself is an absolute overall blanket truth, I am not an omnipresent being. I, I you know, to the degree in this incarnation, the way I am right now. Mm -hmm. If I'm mainlining, that's something different altogether. But I see that you hold a representation of God's truth through yourself as a vessel. Well, if you want to get technical about it, every single person in existence is, has a various degrees of God's truth in yeah. them. What I'm saying to you, though, is as you grow in love, right, the amount of truth that actually enters you as an individual will increase. Right? and you, in the process, will get to the point where you become at one with God on truth, on the issue of truth. Yep. And you will no longer differentiate between my truth, your truth, their truth, but you'll only be interested in what is God's truth in this particular case. Yes. Right? That's all you'll be interested in. Yep. You won't even be interested in your truth anymore. You'll feel your truth, but you won't want to retain it while it's out of harmony with God's. That's absolutely Does that true. make sense? Yep. And so, so as you grow, so four, five, six, these are spheres or dimensional existence, all different in love. As you grow through them, what will happen is you'll become so focused on the absolute truth that you won't care anymore about what my truth is or the other person's truth is anymore. You'll be just so focused on what does God's truth it's in It's more this linguistics though. Yeah. yeah. So, so rather than sort of worrying about the terminology so much, Let's look at the fact that if I'm at this point here, then yes, I do have a limited amount of God's truth in me. Mm -hmm. But if I'm at this point here, I obviously have more of God's truth in me yep. and therefore can reflect more of God's truth and love to others in the process. So you're a cleaner vessel. Sorry? You're a cleaner... cleaner. Uh, yeah, I'm not claiming I am. I'm just no. saying that any person in this yep. place is automatically so. Yep. Does that make sense? So... so as I'm progressing in my truth and love, in my, the way in which I display truth and love in my life, I will find that I will look back down at the previous place that I was and I'll be able to say, yeah, what I thought was the truth back then, I now know isn't anymore. And what I, what I thought wasn't true back then, I now know is. Like, I'll automatically be in that place as I grow. I just need to have a willingness to grow and I also need to have a willingness to let go of what I believe the truth to be at any one moment. So I agree completely that no person in the universe, aside from God, knows the absolute truth. However, as you get closer to God, you will automatically come to know more of God's absolute truth inside of you. And you will no longer differentiate between your truth and my truth. We will just finish up talking about what is God's truth and what isn't. And, and some of the things I've talked about with you today are my understanding of what God's truth is right at this point in time. Now, you can experiment with that yourself and find out whether, it, whether it's God's truth or not just by the amount of pleasure or pain you receive from working your way through the emotions about it. The key is to understand that if I'm willing to do this growth stuff, I will no longer worry about the semantics and I will, pro I will concentrate on the process. So in other words, I'll no longer try to philosophize about who's got what truth, what's going on. I will just concentrate on the process, which is, as long as I get closer to God, I will automatically find out more of her truth. 
as a result. And I'm not just talking about more of her truth about me. I'm also talking about more of her truth about the universe and how it works. More of the truth about her laws. More of the truth about the principles. More of the truth about relationships and people and plants and animals and birds and, and all, these, all these different truths will come to me as a result of getting closer to God, not just the, what, what I feel the truth is at this point, moment in time. It will be, it will be all-encompassing in my life. It will change every area and facet of my life automatically. So you're not rejecting other perceptions of the truth, i.e. other religions, other philosophies, etc.? Certainly I do. I do reject some of them. For example, um, the, the uh, Christian faith at the moment in many countries still has the idea that you can go to war with people who don't believe the same things you do. Now, I reject that totally as the truth. Totally. Right? Now, I don't reject the Christians who practice it. Right? I love them still. But I reject totally that as a truth. Now, they'll tell me that it's a truth. There's another truth that many Christians say to me over and over again and, and that homosexuality is condemned by God. Well, I reject that totally as a truth because of my experience. That, like my, the Apostle John, who you know from the first century, was a homosexual and I know God never rejected him. So, so the truth is that I know God accepts homosexuality under certain conditions and the conditions are based on morals, right? Are based on fidelity and other conditions, but, but there is certainly an acceptance there. So any Christian that comes to me and says homosexuality is wrong, I'm sorry, I reject that as not being the truth. And I will state that definitely. That is not the truth. Um, and, and when you connect with God, every single person who does will eventually feel the same way. I can guarantee you. There are celestial spirits who are at one with God above the eighth sphere of the spirit world and they know for a certainty that God accepts homosexuality because God created it. Right? So, so at the end of the day... That's not a truth either. And then there's, whole, there's a whole faith, there's whole faith based around untruth. And certainly, yes, I do reject them as untruth. Um, but I don't reject the people in them, but I reject that they, they are, what they're saying is true. Certainly. And I don't see it as your truth, my truth. It is either God's truth or not. That's how I see it. So I'm not even interested in my own truth. A lot of times, and sometimes my own truth is in error. And I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in seeing every error I have and then bringing that into harmony with God's truth as well. That's my personal desire. So, so at the end of the day, we won't be focused on your truth, my truth, my perception of truth, your perception of truth. The truth is, from God's perspective, once we become at one with God, we will have God's perception of truth. Right? And if we have God's perception of truth, then we won't ever argue about what's true, what's not after that, because we will know for a certainty what God's truth is in that condition. And, and that's the beauty of becoming at one with God, is that not only you, you resolve forever what is true. Now, of course, when you become at one with God, there's still more truth to learn. So you don't become God in the sense that you know everything God knows, but you do have God's truth in you up to that level that you've become. And so you know for a certainty what is true, and you also know there's certain things to learn after that point about truth. So none of us are in a state where there's nothing to learn. All of us are going to be forever in the state where we're growing towards more truth because God has the absolute infinite truth and all I'm doing is getting more and more and more of that as I live my life. But I have the capacity to actually get so close to God in truth that I can state categorically 
that, for example, if a person chooses to back another person going to war, they are categorically in disharmony with love. And I can make that statement in full truth, knowing that I'm making the statement that's totally harmonious with the way God feels on the subject. Now, God still loves the people going to war, just like I would, but, but I don't, you know, God doesn't agree with the act because the act is an unloving act. So that's the beauty of truth, is that once you start sort of relaxing a bit on your own viewpoints of truth and start really getting attracted to God's viewpoint on truth, then you can rapidly change. It's when we stay addicted to what we believe is the truth or what we believe the truth to be, that's when we don't change. Because, like, I can be, a, for example, I can be a Christian sitting, sitting reading my Bible, justifying to another person all the reasons why I should be able to go to war. Right? Because the Bible does have many of them sitting in it, right? And I can read, yes, you know, you know, God spoke to the Israelites and told them to go off to war against the Egyptians, you know? So God agreed with the war. So I can justify that from that reading. But if I connect emotionally to love, I can't justify that reading at all. So, so the, the problem today is that many of us stay addicted to what we want the truth to be. So, so for example, if I'm angry with a certain race of people because of what they've done to me in some way, I will then want to justify my violent actions back to them. And so I can do all sorts of things in that place. If I'm angry with women, I can justify lots of rageful acts towards them right, based on what they've done to me. But, but if I own my own emotions and I release those emotions and bring myself into harmony with love, can I now justify those things? Well, no, I would could let, I'll have to let go of what I want to be true and instead accept what is the truth, that God views women the same way as God views men, and that is that God loves both, and therefore I need to. Um, so I need to get myself out of this angry, rageful place with women and into this place of, uh, of harmony with them. So once I allow myself to see and not hold on to my own beliefs and see that I can change, then I'm not so addicted to even working out who's got the truth or not. I'm just, I'm just absorbing all these truths coming at me because the truth is every single moment in our lives, God's truth are hitting, hitting us all the time and we reject it because of our emotional condition, because we have certain emotions that go, no, I don't want to accept that inside of us and if we give up that we give up that resistance what will happen is truth just enters us constantly as a result now probably time for a bit of a break don't you think one more please. One, but it's only one person though. how many of you would like a break right now yeah the majority so we have to go with the majority we'll go with democracy for the moment so let's have a break for, make it 30 minutes or so shall we